I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Tabitha Lasley on her new book, Sea State. Tabitha Lasley was a journalist for 10 years. She's lived in London, Johannesburg and Aberdeen. And her first book, Sea State, is what we're going to be talking about today. Tabitha, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. First of all, let's talk about how this book actually came about. Where are you at the beginning of it? Uh, Well, at the beginning of the book, I suppose what they call the inciting incident or screenplay is that I um, am burgled and I lose my laptop in the burglary. And the book that I was working on um, that I have been working on for a few years, disappeared with it because I didn't think it was back up. And that really was the push I needed to leave a life that wasn't really working for me anymore. Nothing about it was working anymore. The relationship I was in wasn't working. The job I was in wasn't really what I wanted to do. And London at that time, it just felt like a bit of a hostile environment. It was about five or six years ago now. And at that point, you know, um, property prices were rocketing, rental prices were rocketing, and it really started to feel like a hostile environment for anyone who wasn't really rich. Um, at least that's, that's how it felt for me at the time. I remember um, my, my then boyfriend and I were looking to buy a flat and it really had a kind of, um, it, it just really crystallized a few things for me. I was like, I can't get into this much debt with a person that I don't want to be tied to for the rest of my life. And and so um, it just seemed like the right time to go. And losing the book upset me so much that I decided to go out and do it all again. You know, I'd been sort of, I, I'd sort of been going back and forth about whether to leave the security of my job and actually go and do it. And, and, and I'd sort of, I think I'm a bit of a ditherer and I've been going back and forth about it for, for quite a while. And I took the burglary as a sign. I'm like a lot of women, I'm quite superstitious. I think that's a female thing really, you know, it's sort of reading signs and things and you know believing in fate i don't really know any men who believe in fate well it's interesting you say that i was gonna i was gonna talk about that because all the way through the book you're talking about signs and superstitions and things and it does seem to me that the seafaring life is one that is also full of superstitions and signs but that doesn't seem to come out in terms of the guys on the rigs does it yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And um, I never heard any of them say anything superstitious. I think, I think it's. I did read once that high risk jobs 
tend to have a lot of superstitious people in them, you know, sort of actors. I know it's it's not high risk in the way um, being a sailor is, but, you know, the fact that, you know, other people are totally in control of your career as an actor, but actors are superstitious, sailors are superstitious, stockbrokers are superstitious, soldiers are quite superstitious. You know, all these professions where you don't have much control over the outcome does tend to breed superstition, but I never heard any of the men um, say anything that I would have classed as superstitious, but... Maybe I just wasn't asking the right questions. And I think if I had my time again, that's probably a line of inquiry that I'd, I'd like to pursue. But I've always I've always found it to be more of a gender thing, really. Women talk about fate all the time. You know, women have this tendency to try and get their own lives to conform to narrative principles. You know, women say, oh, everything happens for a reason. I've yet to hear a man saying that. I think it's, it's Rachel Cusk called it a female system of self-delusion and I think that's probably true but I wonder if it's because historically women didn't have that much control over their own lives and I think the less you feel in control of your own destiny perhaps the more you tend to read into signs and signals. When you first envisioned writing this book and I've said it in that sort of way as as people will, will find out as we go on talking about it but when you first set upon the idea of writing about the offshore life what was it about it that appealed to you? Well I had friends who worked offshore only two of them I didn't have masses of friends who worked offshore but I, had a, I knew a couple of boys who worked offshore and just the way they lived their lives was really fascinating to me I didn't know anybody else like them I remember meeting them and thinking I've never met people like this before in that they were almost like sailors on shore leave to sort of return to that analogy. You know, they go off and they lead these really monastic lives, you know, in real hardship posts as well. They were both in West Africa, I think, when I first met them. They had worked in the North Sea before, but they were in Nigeria when I met them. So they go off and they live these really monastic lives um, on these huge metal structures out in the middle of nowhere. And then they come back and they've got all their money and they just spent a lot of it as if it was burning a hole in their pocket. You know, they drank, they took drugs, they refused to settle down. You know, in provincial towns, most people have settled down by the time they're 30, but these two haven't. And um, just their lifestyle and their attitude really interested me. And I thought one day that will make a good book, but I had to become a writer first. And uh, when I first met them, I wasn't. I was only 25 and my writing was horrible. So I had to wait really until I was ready to write the story. If one reads the blurb of this book, it suggests it's a book about you are going to investigate the offshore world of of the North Sea oil rigs. And then somewhere along the way, you, I suppose, cross a line, become involved with one of your subjects. That's the way that the blurb reads. That doesn't prepare you for the fact that it's literally the first thing that happens as soon as you, literally as soon as you arrive at Aberdeen Airport. So tell us what happens. Well, I think... I mean, the reason why the burglary and the relationship uh, that wasn't working are in there at the beginning, I hadn't originally included them, but then I decided that the reader needed some context because otherwise it didn't make any sense that I just sort of go up there and accept this really meagre proffer basically from the first man I met. I think I was in a very bad relationship um, for about five or six years, and when you're in a very bad relationship, your boundaries um, become skewed. Uh, your ideas of what's normal become skewed. And I think I think I just got to the point where I didn't... I think I just... I sort of came up there for work, but I think I was... Um, I was looking for a way to really divest myself from my old life. And, you know, often people will do that by jumping into a new relationship. You know, it's it's one of the ways people, I think, kind of burn their bridges, kind of, you know, by throwing their lot in with somebody else. 
I don't know, like looking back now, it seems like it was a really weird thing to do. But at the time, it kind of made a, a kind of sense. I was thinking about this um, earlier today because, you know, on the front of the book, there's a quote on the front of the book and it says it from a critic and it says that the book is about female desire. I'd actually argue that the book is about longing and the way in which romantic relationships localize longing and give it a name. You know, you can often, you, you feel in need of something, but you're not sure what it is. And then you meet somebody and it gives that feeling a name. I was wanting a lot of stuff. You know, I was wanting the years of my life I'd wasted with this boyfriend back. I was wanting to leave London. I was wanting to go home. I mean, not just in a literal sense, but in an almost kind of metaphysical sense, you know, I would just wanted to go back to, to a time before I'd met him. And when I met Caden, it sort of localized that longing and gave bit of name and that's why I think there was um a passage in the book that when I met my uh, now agent Tracy Bowen she picked out this passage as really central for her and it was really central for me as well and it's almost slap bang in the middle of the book and it says you know it is about making his love the organizing principle of my life and in that respect he had become my home and that's really what the book is about it's about how you know we can be wanting something something without a name but because you know, because of the way society is structured, you know, there's only a few channels down which you can sort of repurpose that sense of longing. Does that make any sense? And yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously now, now, now the book exists and the book is about the parallel stories of the North Sea and your own memoir. It's, it's difficult to envision it any other way. But obviously at this point, when you were, you know, just arriving in Aberdeen Airport, thinking that you were going to interview a, a load of people who, who worked on the rigs, you embark on this relationship with Katie and it's a very small town and these are gossipy men. But also then you find yourself living, I guess, in quite a precarious situation in a flat in, in Aberdeen. So all of those things, how did that then change the way that you approached the research for the book? Well, I think, I suppose the relationship that I was in kind of gave the book its central thesis, if, if it could be described as having such a thing, which is that... You know, men who were away seem to cheat a lot and they seem to kind of exist in this liminal space where all bets were off. Their cheating existed in an almost, you know, metaphysical realm where, you know, there was nobody around who would know the people involved. Did it really happen? Um, And I think that's very common with people who work away. They often lead two lives and men in particular, I think, are very good at compartmentalising these things. And just saying to themselves when they go back home, oh, it didn't happen. Or, oh, it happened up there, so it didn't really happen. And I started to, I think being with him made me more alert to this sort of behaviour. And the more men I met and the more men I spoke to, the more I realised just how widespread this behaviour and these sort of attitudes were. And it made me more interested in the personal lives of these men and uh, the way in which their working life affected their home life than you know the actual nuts and bolts of their work I'm not terribly interested in what happens on a rig and I always said to my agent you know when we started you know when the book was published and we started doing the promotion I said don't ever put me in to speak you know about oil I don't know anything about oil at all like uh, or everything I know about oil is in the book and I've forgotten most of it by now what I know about is men and their emotional lives that was what I was interested in so it's kind of a very, I don't want to say a female book because that's sort of ghettoizing readers, but I always came at it from the angle that I wanted it to be a book for women because in my experience, women are more interested in the emotional lives of characters 
and men seem to be more interested in sort of facts and how things work. And I'm not sure, that's probably just how we're socialised, but that's how it's always seemed to me. I mean, I don't know many men who read novels, for example, but, you know, maybe that's rubbish. It's true, though, and I think it's it's fascinating, and it, it, it's a book for women, but that's about masculinity as its main theme, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I always saw it. Um, when I was writing it, it took me about three and a half years to write it, you know, and for most of that time, I had a boyfriend, and he was the first person I ever showed bits of it to. And um, he said to me, he read it, and he said, yeah, it's a bird's book. And he didn't mean that in, like, a pejorative way, but, you know, felt that I should really kind of uh, dig into that sort of angle, that it's a book about men for women by a woman. Um, it's always a really nice surprise when I meet a man who's read it and enjoyed it, because I, I did envisage it purely for women, but since it's been published, I have actually had quite a few men get in touch with me and say they really enjoyed it. So that's been nice, but surprising. Just taking a step back a bit, tell us what Aberdeen is like. Oh, God, it's horrible. It's really cold, <laughs> like unbelievably cold. Like, I mean, I'd, I was expecting it to be like a bit cold, but because I'm from the northwest of the country, which is always a couple of degrees warmer, I think, I don't think I was prepared for, well, I wasn't prepared for how cold it was going to be. And it was cold figuratively as well. The people are cold. Um, it's, you know, when English people talk about Scottish people, for the most part, they're talking about Glaswegians. You know, they'll say things like, oh, you know, Scottish people are really friendly. Scottish people are really funny. Scottish people are really warm. They mean Glaswegians because that's most of what we see on television and things. It's either people from Glasgow or, or sometimes Edinburgh. You don't see many people from Aberdeen sort of portrayed. Or People from Aberdeen are chilly. They are obsessed with money. They are really unfriendly. You know, people always say Londoners are unfriendly, but I have stood on a train platform in tears in London and had multiple people come up to me and say, are you okay? Do you want to hang You know, that sort of thing. And I've had done the same thing in Aberdeen and everyone has just ignored me. I mean, obviously that's purely anecdotal, but I do think there's something about the city's character that is, is really austere. It's not a good place to be a single woman or to make friends. It's a strange place because it's a port and obviously quite a large proportion of the population there are itinerant. They're either there for a few months, a few weeks, maybe a few days. You know, the bad weather often sees rig workers get stuck there. So you'll have these sorts of um, populations who will just pass through the city, you know, periodically, but they're not part of the city. Men vastly outnumber women because of that, because of that working population. Yeah, it's a weird place. My friend came up to visit me when I was there. She kept saying to me, I'm just trying to get its flavour. What's its flavour? What's it about? And I said, it, it has no flavour. It's, you know, it's an entirely flavourless place. It's supposed to be rich, but you can't see any of the, the wealth anywhere. I don't know where it's gone because the infrastructure is really bad. The buildings are really drab. You can't see that it's rich. Um, yeah, I probably wouldn't go back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tabitha Lasley and we're talking about her book, Sea State. And Tabitha, I'm just going to quickly cross out a few questions that I had about oil and things related to it. So what is the life like for the guys that are working on the rigs onshore in Aberdeen in that coming and going phase? So when they're either going out to the rig or I guess more specifically, let's talk about coming back from the rig. Well, I mean, first of all, I'd say that most of the people I met who worked offshore were actually from the northeast of England. Um, I think people from Aberdeen, because they've been involved in oil longer, a lot of them have sort of got nicer, cushier onshore positions now. I don't know how representative my sample was, but the majority of the men I spoke to were actually from places like Sunderland and Middlesbrough and Newcastle, you know, all these sort of post-industrial areas in northeast England where they have developed skills that are in demand offshore, but the work on land just isn't there anymore. I think there's something called intermittent husband syndrome, and it happens to um, soldiers as well, you know, sort of men in the military, where actually your wife almost becomes too competent without you. So it's not a case of the wives sort of sitting at home and mooning over their missing partners and hoping they'll come back. It's more that they get a routine, they become very capable, and that when the man comes back, and don't forget, he's he's off work the whole time. You know, he's not, you know, he, he's coming back and he's sitting around the house and getting under her feet. And that is the main cause of friction, that she's kind of worked out a way to run the household and to raise the children without his input. But then, you know, he'll come back and he'll be sitting around the house and he'll be getting under her feet and he'll be throwing his weight around a lot of the time or expecting to be entertained, you know. And that just becomes really difficult for the couple. You know, it's that constant sort of push-pull that they're having to adjust to. You know, the wife or the girlfriend will get used to him being back over the course of three weeks, but then he's going again. And that becomes a whole other thing then, you know, because people, when they know they're about to be separated, they do often sort of pull apart and cool off from each other, you know, in the run-up to their separation. Uh, It's just a coping mechanism. So you've got this constant push-pull, push-pull, push-pull all the time. Some people who I spoke to said that it saved their marriage, actually, and that not being around each other all the time made, you know, their relationship feel fresher. That is 
a thing that, you know, several people said to me, but often it has uh, an attritional effect on a marriage. And often after a few years, um, it will just snap. And what's their life like? Again, I don't want to talk about what they're actually doing in terms of their roles, but what is their sort of day-to-day life like while they are on? It's very boring. That's the main thing that everybody said to me, that, you know, an oil rig is a bit like an aeroplane in that, you know, when things are going right, it's just boring. But when things are going wrong, they go really wrong. But statistically speaking, certainly the North Sea, it's pretty safe since Piper Alpha they've got the most rigorous safety standards in the world. So the main problem offshore is that you're just very, very bored. You know, you can't have a drink because alcohol is banned offshore. You work, say, 12-hour days, but you get lots of breaks in between. You know, 12-hour day sounds pretty arduous, but actually you, you get a fairly generous lunch break and you get sort of in-between breaks and things. But a rig runs 24 hours a day. So you're either on the day shift or the night shift. And there's very little to do there apart from work. You know, you've got a gym. Uh, you've got a TV in your cabin, and obviously these days everybody has devices. Um, but it's just mostly very dull. Most of the men I spoke to said, you know, the sensation is of being like a cog in a machine. You know, it's just really dehumanising. And that's why a lot of them go so mad when they get back onshore, because they've had no pleasure in their lives for three weeks. So they come back and they just overdo it a bit. And you said that now the North Sea is sort of one of the safest oil fields in the world, but but you do talk in the book about how the companies, the asset owners, you know, what their concern is 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 extracting money. They tend to be a bit, a little bit lax on the on the safety these days. Well, it really depends, you know, what the market is doing. Oil is obviously a very volatile commodity. I think it's only second to coffee, is it, in volatility. Uh, great but um yeah i mean depending on on what the market's doing safety will be a priority or not but the one thing that these platforms have to do is hit nominations if you don't hit your nomination which is a set amount of oil that you have to produce you get fined so production is always the main priority but in a downturn you know safety tends to slip a bit lower down the priorities you know they don't they don't do as much maintenance as they should. And obviously, when you think about an oil rig and you think about the way that these structures are getting uh, bashed by the elements all the time, by salt water, by storms, especially in the North Sea, where the sea gets very rough in the winter, maintenance is it's an ongoing job. You know, you've got to look after the fabric of the rig. But the problem with maintenance is that it shuts down production. So in times of recession asset holders are much less keen on doing maintenance and that's when accidents happen i mean that's what that was the context um that piper alpha happened in actually they had thought about um shutting down the rig to do this maintenance work but they just decided it was going to be too expensive so they did um they got on with this maintenance job while the rig was still open for business and when um the crew changed over the notes that they were meant to fill in weren't completed properly. And that was what sparked the gas leak, which sparked the explosion, which became the worst offshore disaster ever. So to what extent has, now, as, as you mentioned in the book, and I, you know, I can remember, even, you know, I come from Leicester, which couldn't be more further from the sea if you tried in this country. But, you know, I had friends at school that dads worked on oil rigs and it was a great job. You know, it was, it was a job that, 
you know, not not least their dads were away for, for a bunch of weeks at a time. But it was obviously an extremely well-paid job for, you know, a typical working class man. Back in the day, this would have been in the sort of, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. And I understand it's it's not as good now, but still, you know, still probably pretty good for, you know, as an average job. But obviously, oil and gas look into the future, you know, are sort of on their uppers anyway. What is the, the sort of immediate future for the men that are working how do they see the future? Well, when I was in Aberdeen, it was six years ago, and, um, you know, the conversation wasn't really about uh, fossil fuels running out and alternatives. I mean, the conversation just in general has really turned towards the environment in recent years. But when I was there, it was 2015, people and I weren't really talking about that. The industry itself is very short-termist. Like, what they do is that they will, in boom times, they will hire people stupid money but then the oil price will dip and they have to lay everybody off so they'll sack every they'll sack everyone because they can't afford to pay these very high wages that they offered in boom time and and this pattern just occurs over and over again and because the industry itself is very short-sighted sort of attitude filters down to the workers i knew a lot of men who were really earning quite good salaries but having no savings they hadn't even put money away for their tax bill a lot of the time. I mean, a tax bill happens every year. It's not a shock when you get a tax bill. And yet every year they find themselves without enough money to cover it because it's really this sort of earn it and burn it kind of mentality that filters down from the very top. So when I was there, we didn't really, there was only one man I interviewed actually who brought up, you know, the issue of the environment unprompted. It might have changed a little bit now. Some people from Greenpeace got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago. They're looking for men to be filmed um, in this documentary they're doing about oil workers who want to leave oil for renewable um, sources. But, you know, they're, they're really having a lot of trouble finding subjects to be in the film because, you know, oil is such an opaque industry and the workers don't like speaking out. But they said that they did a survey and it's, it was something like four in five um, workers had thought about leaving oil and going into another industry. But that's not really surprising because, you know, oil has these little sort of mini recessions every few years. Um, it's worse now because, you know, they'd only just recovered from the last one when COVID happened. But, you know, it, it's always been a kind of boom-bust industry which will have big layoffs and then everybody will kind of get re-employed a few years later. So it would be it would be strange if they hadn't really thought about their options. Yeah, I, I don't really know because, you know, obviously this is going back six years for me now and even in that time the conversation has has really changed. Um, there are certain skills that you have in an oil rig which would be useful, you know, on, say, like a wind farm. But the thing about modern technology, and we've seen this, you know, with just the digitization of every industry, is that it just doesn't require many people. So you only need a handful of people to operate a wind farm as opposed to, say, hundred on an oil rig you know it's just these newer technologies i mean if you look at the amount of people that kodak would have employed compared to the amount of people instagram employ you know leaps forward in technology always mean a shredding of sort of human resources there's no way that sustainable uh, energy is going to be able to um, absorb all the workers from oil because it just doesn't require that many bodies to run those those sort of farms we talked about how masculinity was a major theme of the book and even more so perhaps is class and the sort of intersections of class and money. These are, you know, in the main working class men 
as you said, mainly from the northeast in in this context. And and you talk in the book about the intersections of these men and the lives of working class women in terms of the precarity of their lives with these, you know, the intermittent husband being being away part of the time. Yeah, t- tell me something about that, the sort of exploration of of the lives of of working class women that are a- attached to this industry. Yeah, I mean, that was the line of inquiry I was most interested in, really. And if I had my time again, I would definitely dig into the lives of those women much further. I think it's really interesting the way in which the family unit has broken down. I mean, across all um, kind of grades of society, the family unit has broken down. And yet, as with everything, the consequences for working class people are more serious than the consequences for middle class people. And, you know... A lot of women in these communities, you know, the, the men. So the way I, 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 I described it when, um, when somebody asked me about this a few months ago is that when my grandparents were young, my grandparents were working class, and the women then very often managed the finances. You know, they, they managed the homes. The men would come back on Friday with their wages and they would give it to the woman and the woman would manage the money. That was part of the female kind of remit, you know. That's not the way it is anymore. Now the men earn the money and they manage it. And that really reduces the woman in the partnership to almost the status of an employee. And, you know, employees can be replaced. A lot of these couples, they've had children without getting married. And I think sometimes women think that having children gives you some sort of legal protection. It doesn't. You know, the idea of the common law spouse, it's a total myth. You know, if the man decides that he wants to leave you and you're not married I mean you can try and get child support out of him but again if a man is a sole trader um, which a lot of these men offshore are he can sort of you know fiddle his earnings to make it look like he's earning minimum wage it's a loophole that the government really needs to close but but they haven't yet even if you're married actually it doesn't give you the protection it would give you if your husband was working in a salary job you know if you're if you're married in this country and your husband is working in a salary job he can't hide his earnings, but most of these men aren't salaried, you know, the contractors, and they are, for tax purposes, working for themselves. And what that means is that they can stash all their money in an umbrella fund, should you divorce, and declare that they're earning minimum wage and just pay themselves dividends. And that means that you'll get, you know, nothing out of them. And, you know, a lot of these men who work in this sort of job, it's a status symbol to have a wife that doesn't work. You know, they like to be able to say, you know, I, you know, I take care of my family and my wife doesn't need to have a job. But of course, when the wife gets fed up with their behavior and the bill comes in, it's a different story and they don't want to pay for her and they don't want to compensate her for, you know, all the years she's given up raising a family, running a house. And um, yeah, I, I just think that, you know, I, I mean, I never would have given up my work anyway because my work interests me. Um, I don't do it for the money. I mean, I need the money, but, you know, that's not the main reason I do it. Well, no, it is. What I'm trying to say is that I wouldn't, even if I were to meet, you know, a millionaire tomorrow and marry him, I would not give up my work because I find it interesting. But the experience being around these men and seeing their attitudes towards women, towards their own wives, convinced me that there is no circumstance ever that would lead me to give up work because, the thing is, you know, women talk about wanting a rich husband, wanting wanting a rich man, but they don't factor in the things that go with having a rich husband. And one of those things is the level of entitlement. You know, we live in a capitalist society. We live our lives by the indices of capitalism. And to a certain extent, earning a lot of money gives you a big head. 
and earning nothing, even if you're working really hard in a home and, you know, you're doing all the labor that's associated with keeping a house going, raising children. To a certain extent, women who don't bring in a wage, they feel worthless. And when the man says, you know what, this is my money. I earned it. I'm going to decide what I do with it. They'll be like, oh, yes, OK. And they, they won't put any kind of there's no prestige to being a wife. There's no prestige to being a mother. We don't value those things in our society, even though it's really hard work. It's much harder than going into an office, you know, raising two small children. But because there's no financial value attached to it, there's very few couples who place any value to it at all, even though it's essential work. So, you know, being around those men and seeing those attitudes just made me think I would never give up my job ever. Because if you give up your job, you give up your power most of the time. It takes a very special, very evolved man to, you know, be prepared to share his money if you're not working. So I've been talking to Tabitha Lasley. We've been talking about her book, Sea State, which is out in the UK from 40 State. Tabitha, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.